Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hope you had a good day. I think Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson had a very good day, and I hope you've enjoyed watching the hearings. If you get a chance to watch them, please do, um, or just the highlights. But it's, it's interesting to watch all of them because they really do show you the best and worst of America. The best in terms of Judge Jackson. And how she has risen, how good she is at her job, uh, how great her family seems to be, how great her parents seem to be, um, a real historical success story. And as well as hearing the accolades heaped upon her from these old white senators, uh, Democrats and some Republicans who uh, are justifyingly praising her. It is a moment of history and it's worth watching. It's also worth watching because, well, shucks, folks. We get a front row seat to the ugliest part of America. I don't mean the stupid racist part of America. I mean something worse than that. I mean the political part of America that bends over backwards to appeal to the stupid racist part of America. The confirmation hearings as we know them are not about judicial qualifications. It's all about ideology and to a lesser extent, it's all about payback for the way Donald Trump's ridiculous nominees were treated. Um, <laughs> Lindsey Graham, yesterday we discussed quite a bit, he, he, he was really upset uh, that her nomination has been less controversial than Brett Kavanaugh's. Uh, of course, the reason her nomination has been less controversial than Brett Kavanaugh's is that Judge Jackson has not been credibly accused of sexual assault. A little, little thing that distinguishes her from, from, from Judge Brett. And it's been fascinating to see how they're trying to make sure their dog whistle doesn't sound like a train whistle. So you're used to the usual obnoxious questions and points coming out. But it's been a real interesting couple of days for uh, the quiet part to be said out loud. I want to play a really quick little clip, Chris. This is, uh, this is Lindsey Graham um, asking a question in a Senate Supreme Court hearing that you're not supposed to be asking in a country like this, directly asking her about her religion even though that question is literally against everything our Constitution is about. By the way. Senator, I am um, Protestant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Non-denominational. Okay. Could you fairly judge a Catholic? Senator, I have a record of I fairly the answer would be yes. judging everyone. I believe you can. I'm just <laughs> asking this question because how important is your faith to you? Senator, personally, um, my faith is very important. Um, but as you know, there's no religious test in the Constitution under under Article 6. 
So, you know, Lindsey Graham, of course, spent all day yesterday talking about her work as a federal public defender and, and who she worked with and what are her opinions. Lindsey Graham already knows all these things because just last year he voted to confirm her for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Lindsey's being kind of mild about it. Marsha Blackburn, not so much. She went so far as to suggest that Judge Jackson is proof that there is no such thing as white privilege in America. Marsha Blackburn, who is so racist, Taylor Swift tweets about it, said, you serve on the board of a school that teaches kindergartners, five-year-old children, they can choose their gender, and that teaches them about so-called white privilege. She's all just bashing what she calls the radical left. You've praised the 1619 Project, which argues the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country, and you've made clear you believe judges must consider critical race theory when deciding how to sentence criminal defendants. None of that is true, by the way. But, but again, she's saying that, that your proof that white privilege doesn't exist in America, a place where uh, we've had 114 justices so far, and of the 114, two have been black. So they're not going to come out and wear hoods. They're not going to come out and burn crosses. We already know this. The, at some point, the dog whistle becomes a train whistle. Sort of like what happened to Mike Braun, Republican senator from Indiana. Uh, he said the quiet part out loud this week, and he's been bending over backwards trying to cover it up. He was in a conference call with the reporters yes, uh, earlier today, and he actually said that he believes the U.S. Supreme Court should never have legalized, you ready, interracial marriage. Yes, that's right. He thinks that decision should have been left up to the states. Give a listen. This is future former Senator Mike Braun. So you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? Yes, I think that that's something that uh, <laughs> if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, uh, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. I think that's hypocritical. Now, here's the deal. If you listen to SiriusXM Progress, you're probably smart enough to know by now, anytime any white person is talking about states' rights, Racism is, if not right there in front of you, waiting around the corner in a car that's idling. Um, states' rights is the bullshit term they've always used to try to make racism seem okay. We learn this when they try to say the Confederacy was not about owning people as pets. It was about states' rights. They still say this. And it was about states' rights, the right of states to own people as pets. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, said in the cornerstone speech that the inferiority of the black man was the cornerstone of the Confederacy. But they'll still say states' rights, states' rights. So I'm not surprised when you hear Mike Braun talk about that, states' rights. It's always a code for something. Uh, Braun was saying how Roe v. Wade was a form of judicial activism because <laughs> Mike Braun's never going to be a pregnant teenage girl. And he said that issue should have been left up to the states as well. And then they asked him about Loving versus Virginia, 1967. He says you can't have it both ways. When you want the diversity to shine within our federal system, there are going to be rules and proceedings. They're going to be out of sync with what other states would do. It's the beauty of the system. And that's where the differing among points of view in our 50 states ought to express themselves. And they asked him about interracial marriage again, whether he still believes the state should decide on that issue in particular. And again, he said, I think that that's something that if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, you're going to have to be able to have your cake and eat it, too. So after it, it turns out Mike Braun, I guess, didn't know this was going to be on camera 
and that the microphone he was talking into was recording his words? Because after people began discussing this, he issued a statement that said he'd understood a line of questioning that ended up being about interracial marriage. and said, let me be clear on that issue. There's no question the Constitution prohibits discrimination, blah, 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 blah. I condemn racism, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He condemned racism because he got caught defending it. He said twice that states should be allowed to ban interracial marriage and that you should not be allowed to marry the person you love if the state decides they're the wrong color for you. We are one-fifth of the way through the 21st century, and that's how Mike Braun talks. And all of this really is to soften you up for the words of Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Um, Let's just give a little listen. Here's Ted Cruz earlier today talking to Judge Jackson, and you kind of just you kind of just know, right? You have your drink there, and you're ready when Ted talks about critical race theory, when Ted talks about transgender women athletes. You, you, you know it's going to come up. Here is Ted Cruz on his favorite boogeyman of the week, critical race theory. The 19 Project, which I believe is, is deeply inaccurate and misleading. Um, 1619 Project is closely intertwined with a movement that is called critical race theory. Uh, Critical race theory, as you know, originated at your and my alma mater at at the Harvard Law School. Uh, In your understanding, what, what does critical race theory mean? What is it? Senator, my understanding is that critical race theory is, um, it is an academic theory that is about the ways in which uh, race interacts with um, various institutions. It doesn't come up in my work as a judge. It's never something that I've uh, studied or relied on, and it wouldn't be something that I would rely on if I was on the Supreme Court. Okay, really simple, really simple. I mean, Ted Cruz was talking about books that are available at Georgetown Day School where Judge Jackson Child goes, where she sits as a board member. And he was using that to attack her for critical race theory. Asks if you're okay with that. And she says, board members don't have any role in curriculum and critical race theory does not come up in my life as a judge. It kind of gives you one one one-hundredth of a sense of what a woman like Judge Jackson has to go through with mediocre white men in positions of authority every day kind of gives you a sense of what all matter of women have to go through with mediocre men in positions of authority over them all day. Yesterday, Ted Cruz gave us an object lesson in what we call unconscious bias. I, I don't really love the expression unconscious bias. I like to say ignorant racist because ignorant racists are always ignorant that they're racist. And Ted Cruz thought he was going to, well, I don't know if you heard yesterday, but Ted Cruz thought he was going to give this black woman a history lesson. He said yesterday, Supreme Court confirmations weren't always controversial. In fact, Bushrod Washington, when nominated to the Supreme Court in 1798, was confirmed the very next day. Now, <laughs> he, I, Ted Cruz could have talked about how it was almost unanimous for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, Sandra Day O'Connor. They all sailed through. It, it didn't used to be a half and half Senate, but he didn't. He went to Bushrod Washington. I, I'm like, why Why would you choose that guy? I mean, think about it. We, we began yesterday's show talking about how some of these Supreme Court hearings were so popular. Antonin Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to 3. Stephen Breyer was confirmed 87 to 9. Sandra Day O'Connor 
99 to 0. Thurgood Marshall got 69 votes. In 1967, the first black man on the court, Elena Kagan, got 63 votes. Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed 68 votes. Not that controversial, but Ted Cruz brings up Bushrod Washington. And who, who is Bushrod Washington anyway? Well, that's where we get to the part about Ted Cruz being an ignorant racist. Um, Bushrod Washington was George Washington's nephew. Uh, and General Washington loved his nephew. He had never served as a judge before, but he was officially nominated to the Supreme Court back in 1798. And yes, it's true. He was confirmed the next day in the Senate. He'd already been serving on the court for like a month because he was a recess appointment from President John Adams. We've had 10 justices who've been recess appointments. And Bushrod Washington liked to own people as slaves. I, I don't really understand why, if Ted Cruz is looking for an example of a nominee who got confirmed to the Supreme Court quickly without a lot of controversy, there have been dozens of them. I mean, there have been 10 nominees who were confirmed on the same day they were nominated. I, 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 like, like Bushrod Washington is just one of many to be confirmed that quickly, but he picked a guy... He picked a guy that happened to own slaves, and not just anyone who owns slaves. The Washington Post had a great piece on this. Of the 31 senators that we had in the Senate at the time of Bushrod Washington's confirmation to the Supreme Court, uh, at least 18 of them also were enslavers. They owned people. Now, uh, Bushrod Washington was on the Supreme Court for more than 31 years, which is longer than any of the current justices, and he was a big fan of slavery on the court. You know the famous story how Washington freed his slaves when he died? He, he left them to Martha at Mount Vernon. And when she died, well, the Mount Vernon estate was actually left to his nephew, Bushrod Washington. I've been there. You should go visit it in Virginia. It's a great place to visit. Um, Bushrod Washington did not inherit his famous uncle's slaves because Martha freed the last of them before she died. And again, George Washington freed his slaves. So Bushrod Washington brought his own slaves to Mount Vernon. Think about that. George Washington promises to free all of his slaves when he dies. And he does, and his wife frees the rest. And then his nephew gets the house, and there's no more slaves. So he just brings his own slaves with him. And he co-founded something called the American Colonization Society. That's a, a group that was all about sending all these free black Americans that are no longer slaves back to Africa where most of them had never once been. Uh, people were pressured to leave. Uh, people were promised freedom from their enslavers if they left. And he was also terrible uh, businessman at Mount Vernon. The Post reports that in 1821, he had run the property into such disarray, he sold 54 human pieces of property for $10,000 to pay off his debts. And he made his buyers promise to not separate the families, but men, women, and children were sent off in chains to be auctioned in Louisiana. One newspaper called it excessively revolting. This is the guy. This is the guy Ted Cruz decides to mention in his speech yesterday. When speaking to the first black woman that will ever serve on the Supreme Court, he's got to give her a history lesson, and he brings up the fine man Bushrod Washington. Did Ted Cruz know the entire story of Bushrod? Did Ted Cruz know that Judge Jackson probably knew the entire story of this man? He praised as a symbol of a more enlightened age when we got along better. I mean, really, wasn't it better back then? These uncontroversial times. What changed, he said. And then Ted Cruz 
revealed himself. He said, what changed is, starting in the 1960s and the 1970s, the Supreme Court's role in our society changed dramatically. The Supreme Court became a policy-making body rather than a merely judicial body. Starting in the 60s and 70s, the Supreme Court decided its place in our democracy, at least too many justices, was to set aside the democratic decision of the people and instead mandate the policy outcomes they themselves supported. Are you following this? It was great back when we were uncontroversial, having brutal enslavers who weren't even judges put on the Supreme Court. But then in the 60s, oh, the Supreme Court overstepped a lot and they became a policy-making body. He's talking about the rulings for civil rights for black Americans and for voting rights for black Americans. That's exactly the cases he was vaguely referring to in this era of the court that he decried. A time when the courts tried to find justice for black folks, for women, for Indians, for other historically marginalized groups. These are the shades of racism that women like Atanji Brown Jackson have to deal with every day. We're just seeing them on our TV. And by the way, Mitt Romney, who might vote for Judge Jackson, I think he'd be smart too. He told the Washington Post the attacks by some of the Republicans of her sentencing record are off course. He said... There is no there there. Nice words, Mitch, 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 but uh, there is a there there. And we know exactly what the there is that's there. And we know exactly what they're talking about. My compliments to Judge Jackson for grace under deeply racist fire. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One fabled night during Matthew Frey's divorce, he began writing a blog about making sense of how his wife went from being a college student who loved him to a woman who despised him and found fault. And he came to understand that even though he was what the culture calls a good guy, he was not objectively a good husband. And he shared a blog post titled, She Divorced Me Because I Left the Dishes by the Sink. And it was read over four million times and several million more times on sites like the Huffington Post. Um, his last name is a pen name to protect the identity of his ex-wife and his young son. But it went viral, and he has become a much sought-after relationship expert and consultant. And again, it's not in the sense of someone who's written a book with some theories. This is a man who's lived it. This is a man who knows the bullshit men perpetrate on themselves. And his new book is something that, uh, it's the kind of book we don't discuss too much now that the show's moved to this channel, but it is This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. And as we pointed out, with the COVID pandemic lockdown happening, so many couples were trapped together. And in Wuhan, China, where the first lockdown happened, upon lifting the lockdown, there were a record number of divorces. It's a book not just about how a marriage ends, but how to prevent that and how men can wake up and take necessary steps actionable advice to identify toxic bullshit behavioral patterns in our own lives and women too, and to break out of the cycles of behavior and dysfunction that ruin lots of relationships that deserve to last. It's a really smart book. And it's a book I think that teaches guys 
How to Act Like Men. It's a real pleasure to welcome Matthew Frey to SiriusXM. John, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really appreciate the book. And uh, and I said at the top of the show, normally you walk into a bookstore and where there's any area about relationships or helping relationship problems or any kind of self-help, it's almost always directed towards women. And some of it's good, some of it's not. But this is a book that really you're really writing this for men, aren't you? Yes. I, I theorize that women will pick it up and procure the book at a higher rate than men, at least in these early days. We'll see. Obviously, we have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea to what extent people are going to accept this and read this and share this. Um, but I think it's going to be women to start with. But yes, it absolutely is about men that I, I really do want to defend, not their behavior per se, but their intentions. Exactly. That they really want to be good husbands, good fathers, keep their families together, and they mean well. It's just in our blind spots, we're capable of causing an enormous amount of harm when we are not mindful of how what we do impacts the people that we care about. It seems so simple, and yet it's so epidemic. And there's lots of guys out there that think they're great guys. But we've, as men, been sold the same romantic bill of goods that women have been sold, that somehow it's a loving machine, and as long as the love is there and you're still attracted and you can make each other laugh, that it'll all work out. How much do you think relationships are damaged by a culture that values weddings so much more than it values marriages? A lot, and we won't have time to discuss all the nuances of that. But, you know, one of the things I talk about on, I don't like the stereotyping, but it's so hard in these conversations not to stereotype a little bit for the purposes of expediency. Um, young girls and male-female relationships, at least, you know, in my generation, um, read a lot of bridal magazines, wanted to get yeah. married, a, a goal of theirs yep. was to be married. That was like a life goal for them. And, you know, they've always got their, their eyes out for their husband to be. And I believe that a young woman or man in that situation, if, if a goal is to be married, then you're going to compromise exactly. on things that feel bad on things that are potentially harmful to you and our relationships in an effort to achieve the goal of marriage. And I think that Culturally speaking, that has been bad on on the on the ladies' side and, and male female relationships, and then you know on our side, the amount of toxic masculinity bullshit that I learned yeah. from locker rooms, you know, football, basketball, track, hanging out with my friends, all of whom are are, are wonderful people, but when yeah. we were teenagers, we had no idea. I think how how ugly some of the things we said and joked in a lighthearted way. It's amazing how, how awful you can be while perceiving yourself to never intentionally harm anyone. It's also amazing how much fear men can have under the guise of being tough and how empathy and kindness are so often socialized to be perceived as weakness, um, which is a tremendous kind of weakness that makes a lot of men's lives really unhappy because no one sets out to be a douchebag. You know, you, you say in the book that you can be a good person and not necessarily be a good spouse. I completely agree. And no one sets out to be evil. But what's the difference? How do you define the difference between being a good person and being a good partner? I don't. Good is like a nebulous idea that's going to sure. vary from person to person. And I don't think that I, 
Non-toxic I don't think that I get to be the guy, you know, who decides. Um, but but the, the way that I think about it is I, I really, I really advocate getting rid of a nasty habit. I think most of us have of invalidating our partners when they come to us and try to communicate some problem they're having in the relationship or some pain that they're feeling. I think many, many men respond in a way that says you shouldn't think that you shouldn't feel that because I don't perceive those things to be true, or I'm not trying to do that. Another way we invalidate is through defensiveness. So these criticisms come at us and we're like, we're good guys. Like I want to defend my honor right now. And anyway, in those very honest responses, we are invalidating and eroding the trust of our partner. And when we can think of how we show up in relationships, not as a measure of our character, how relatively good or bad we are, then, then I think we can get rid of like the non, the, the defensiveness nonsense, which many, many, you know, partners complain about experiencing from, from the person that they live with and love. If, if you can't feel bad about something and then go tell the person you live with that this thing feels bad to you, feels harmful That's to right. you. And that conversation cannot succeed unless the other person just naturally agrees with you. If you can't have someone, so that was me in my marriage. I disagreed with my wife, what she thought and felt, and she never got the win. If I disagreed, I didn't understand this notion of being respectful and validating things that I didn't agree with. It's, It's really imperative in relationships that we develop that skill. And so, you know, the way you framed that question, the way that I think about it is I want to eliminate defensiveness. I want to separate, disassociate character from the quality of how the, the skill set I bring yeah. to the relationship. I just think really the simplest way to think about it is really good people can be bad at anything you can imagine. Building a bridge, driving a race car, solving a math problem. We can be bad at relationships. It doesn't mean that we're trash human beings. And so we don't need to be defensive. We should be someone that's teachable. I love it. I mean, I, I think another factor is that men who are really good at arguing who'd make great lawyers, well, that can be terrible in a relationship because if you're really, really good at debating and arguing a point and you're just trying to defend yourself, you can really artfully keep yourself from learning anything for quite a while and keep your partner from ever being heard. You just summed up most of my marriage. Yeah. Let me ask you about compatibility because that seems to be much more the ideal state. You know, obviously there's romance, there's attraction, uh, there's warmth, but uh, compatibility in the book is really an area where, where you, you break down the definition of it. And what are the two kinds of compatibility that you focus on that we should be thinking about? You know, to forgive me, it's been a really long day, so I'm not even oh, sure no that worries. I, can, I can recite this correctly. I might actually need your help. Sure. But I, the way that I think about, the way that I remember thinking about compatibility was this notion of a likeness or sameness. That's it. We're, yes. we're compatible because we're similar. And that's how, that's how I thought about compatibility growing up. You know, she's like me. She thinks more or less the things that I think and wants more or less the things I want. Therefore, we're compatible. And then, you know, people stay together for a long time. Conflict inevitably emerges when you don't, when you lack relational skills. And then you maybe deem yourself to not be compatible anymore. Exactly. And I, I believe I quoted researcher Ted Hudson, Ted Hudson. I think he's from the University of Houston, if I'm remembering correctly. And he did 
a bunch of research on this idea of compatibility and discovered that compatibility is a thing that that we manufacture mindfully. We choose to show up effectively and we choose to love our partners. And the people who report a lack of compatibility were just people like me who were dissatisfied in their relationship because you grow apart when you accidentally hurt other people and don't take any responsibility for it, which was what I did. Uh, you have written and talked quite a bit about the New York Times profile that was done of you two years ago, two years ago this month, I believe, right when COVID was striking us. Uh, it's a really worthwhile story. It's called The Man Who Coaches Husbands on How to Avoid Divorce. And uh, you have discussed how this came at a very strange time for you, the actual call about being profiled in the Times. That's right. I first got notified in January 2020. Things were relatively normal, right? In the United States, we'd heard of COVID. Um, but I don't think the average American was feeling like threatened by it in January 2020. And then ended up doing the interview COVID happened, the story got, you know, like put on a shelf. And I actually kind of thought it was never going to happen. I'm like, this is, this is in math terms, the biggest story of my lifetime. This is a global pandemic, a thing that happens approximately once every hundred years. Nobody's going to care about some guy, you know, coaching people on the internet. Um, And then they reached out and it's exactly what you talked about at the beginning of this segment, this idea that COVID and, and people locking down together and how it exacerbated, magnified the problems we were having. And John, as you know, it, it's my belief that it's these very small things in relationships, these so-called little things, conversations about toilet seats being up and dishes by right. the sink and laundry on the floor, yeah. all of this um, that can destroy trust and love in, in, in relationships. And so COVID really brought that to the forefront and then the New York Times was super interested in, in sharing that once they realized this was becoming been becoming a problem, something you were in tune with in a way that I was not. Well, I mean, I'm curious what, what your life has been as a relationship counselor over these last two years, because we've all known people whose marriages or, or live-in relationships have frayed or broken during this time. Uh, and I think we all know people whose relationships have deepened in some unexpected ways as well. I mean, it it hasn't necessarily all been tragic. For every story of a couple who realized, oh, we're not actually inherently compatible, there's other stories of couples who suddenly, when forced to live together, found new ways to make the household run, where one person didn't feel like they were doing all the grown-up work. That's right. I I have a client now who spent his entire career traveling globally, being a financial consultant. Um, You know, every country that he works in on earth lots of them he's gone all the time and missed a lot of his kids upbringing and then you know in january 2020 just a couple years shy of becoming empty nesters he gets forced home and um their relationship didn't necessarily thrive but they benefited a little bit from togetherness in a way that they'd been separated for so long and he's a relatively new client just in the last maybe six seven eight months um but to, to be my experience specifically in my coaching work hasn't been altered terribly by COVID specifically. There are some, I can, I can think of a few stories where it did, where you have um, one of the partners is particularly sensitive to it, either for health reasons or it, they just mentally, emotionally didn't feel safe about it. Wanted to right. maybe protect their children. 
Um, and that caused a lot of added stress and strain. But the problems that I encounter in this work, again, show up so small. I, I, I focus, hyper-focus on really everyday, quote unquote, minor domestic household things. Yeah. And those exist both in pandemics and in the, the so-called best of times. But it really is a guide, not so much about saving a marriage, but about being a better man, about not expecting someone to pick up your shit for you and take care of it. And and there's a lot of so much humor and wit in the book. There's in one section um, where you talk about uh, good men who are shitty husbands and all good men who are bad husbands fall into one of two camps. Men who don't know they are bad husbands. Um, and uh, you believe all married men in existence, the vast majority, 85% fall to this category, men who don't know they're bad husbands or men who know they are bad husbands but want to be good. And I think there's a lot of men who've been on both sides of that equation. And it got me thinking about the fact that, you know, guys really have it tougher than women in one crucial way. In this culture, women are socialized to want to talk about feelings and understand feelings and understand relationships where men are often raised by the peer group, and that's discouraged. One of the themes I kept getting from your book was men of all ages, but particularly young men, are sent into this lifelong commitment without any idea at all of what they're doing or how to handle it. I mean, I, I, I would make junior high school just three years of being trained how to be good in a relationship as a man, or at least to understand the male libido and how destructive it is. But men are given no tools and then they're given the shame when they fuck up. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I, uh, that sounds about right. I was really angry. My marriage ended nine years ago and, and it was the hardest thing that I'd ever gone through. And when I realized, when I felt as if I'd stumbled on the explanation for why my marriage ended, which all of the work that I'm doing today is based on, like, why was this information not provided to me either by my parents or, or modeled for me somehow from like other adults yeah. in my life, coaches, teachers, anybody. And it, it doesn't happen. And, and I think it's really important. And I'm glad that you brought like that idea up. I want to give a shout out to Jenner, filmmaker Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who uh, made a film in 2017 called The Mask You Live In, which is about yeah. this very idea, how boys are brought up and they're taught, they have to like prove their manhood all the time and in order to, you know, be man enough. And then it turns out that that behavior is, is so harmful to relationships, romantic and otherwise. And then, you know, guys grow up lonely yeah. and angry and shitty at the most important things in their lives. And then confused about why they don't feel good and why they're sitting by themselves at 75 with, you know, nobody that wants to hang out with them. Those are I mean, sad stories. And that's a crucial point, because later on in the book, you talk about the priorities men have with their social circles. And yet the older men get the fewer friends they have. Is that a crisis, do you think, for men? The fact that the older males get in our culture, they just don't tend to hang on to friends? I, I think so. I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak for all these guys that I don't know. But I believe sure. most people's default is to crave human connection and companionship and, and togetherness with other people. It's level three of the human needs pyramid. We, we, we crave connectivity with other people. And I think we're our best selves 
on a team, as part of a family, in a classroom, as part of like a working crew. Um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of men specifically, really grab onto this idea of tribe in their youth, whether it's their group of friends or whether it's, you know, military or whether it's a sports team that they played yeah. on. And when that goes away in like middle adulthood in their relationships, it, 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 can, it often can, a lot of breakage happens. And then I think that we, we push people that, you know, we want to love and save us away. And then we're so angry and we're so confused and we don't know how to do anything about it. And there's no opportunity for me at 45, 55, 65 to go easily find a new tribe. I've got to like work really hard yeah. for that. And my wife used to do all that for me. Um, I don't know. It's easier to sit on the armchair and flip channels and have a drink. And I, I think yeah. people just choose that. I, I, I don't think they want it. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I wish I knew how to, how to answer it. I wish I have, I have the problem myself. I'm blessed to have some friends and some connectivity, but I turned 43 in a couple of days and I'd spend a fair amount of time, you know, just being a guy that's divorced and hanging out by himself in a house when my son's not around. In fairness, it's been a really strange couple of years, and I think a lot of us yeah, are trying to figure out our own socialization processes. But if I may, uh, you are clearly uh, a guy who, as they say, has done the work, and it comes through in the book. Uh, if you were a fan of the blog post, She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink, which I was, you'll definitely want to check this out. It's not just a book for men, but wow, is it a great book for men, because it's about a lot more than marriage. This is How Your Marriage Ends, a hopeful approach to saving relationships. Matthew Frey, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. John, thank you for the opportunity. Great to, great to talk to you. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's go to Michael in Florida. Michael, thank you for your patience on hold. Todd, how is it possible that a man can be voted woman of the year? Please I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. As a dick like you, me, and Chris, but it identifies as a woman like Thea. How is this possible? Please. Well, I'd like to we, hear your thoughts. We live in a country that is based on freedom and liberty. Dr. Rachel Levine is a pediatrician and a Harvard graduate and is the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, I believe, the, the highest-ranking openly transgender official in the country. But, you know, people are really, really, and I mean really, really, I mean extremely cruel to transgender people. People try to hurt their feelings. People try to make their lives very unhappy. 
and people are openly mean and hateful to transgender folks, despite the fact that we allegedly live in a society based on freedom and liberty. But some people like to hurt other people, so they try to say very, very cruel things to hurt trans... I just want to know... Well, no, yes, you do. You called her an it. You just called her an it. So, yeah, you do condone it. Yes. It's okay. Go ahead. Hate. Don't, Don't hide your bigotry. We've had this conversation before, Michael. I know that racism doesn't bother you, and you waited on hold for an hour to shit on a trans person. So go ahead and do it. This is who you are. Let no, your hate was, come out and shit on a trans person. I'm no, sorry? I, I just want to know. I was catching up on some Disney Plus, playing a video game. It's my night off from work. I know you so, enjoy yeah. getting off on hurting people, and I know that you enjoy shitting on marginalized peoples. We've been through this before. I know how, racism how, doesn't bother you. I know Donald I Trump's racism doesn't bother you. People? Okay, uh, transgender people have very hard lives in this country because people are extremely yeah, mean to them why? and call them things like it. Well, no, most of them, you know, take take Jazz Jennings, for for instance. You know, I, I don't know how old he is now, but he, you know, probably by the age of 25, probably will have some sort of, you know, severe depression because he won't be able to find true love because no guy out know? there is going to say, eh, most of them how don't. Do you know? But but again, listen to how, listen but again, to how much of this is projection. This is all projection based on a group of people no. that you enjoy being mean to because you like to hurt certain people and you get off on this. Yeah. So this is you enjoying it. So go ahead and be as hateful as you want to Dr. Rachel Levine. That's what you waited on hold for an hour to do, right? Talk shit about her. Go ahead and talk shit about us for calling her her like she likes to be called. Go ahead, please. John, do you know the Swedish study that most men who transition into a woman or think, you know, they, they think in their heads, oh, I'm a woman, yet I still stand up to be. Um, you don't know how they do that. You're projecting again. You're projecting again. Why does this bother you? Of all the things going on in this country, why do you wait on hold on a Tuesday night on a radio show to shit on transgender women? That's what's bothering you. That's what's seizing your heart. That's what's moving you to act as a man and to speak this way. It's your contempt and disgust for transgender women trying to live the way they choose to live because they're lucky enough to be in a country that pays lip service to liberty and freedom. John, most of them commit suicide, and I don't want That's not true. That's a lie. Yes, they do. That's a lie. No. Most transgender people people do not commit suicide. Of trans men commit suicide. How many trans people do you know? None, have you ever had a never, conversation? Never have you ever had a conversation with a transgender person about their life or experience? Have you ever had a conversation with this group you so despise about their life, their pain, their struggle, their experience? Or is it just shitting on them? That, that's, that's as far as you want to wade into the pool. I know humanity's not your thing, and I know being a good man to others isn't your thing. But have you ever had a conversation with a transgender person? No, no, because I, I don't really want to. But You're afraid. I can tell you don't, yeah. Yeah. Uh, has there ever of? been an act? When's the last time an act of racism bothered you? What, which one? I mean, you know. Oh, tell us racism about against racism against an historically oppressed minority. Why? Well, who, who's being oppressed? You I mean, tell us. You tell us. 
You tell us. Well, We've been through this before. Your life? You're a guy who is know, a lot. I don't know anybody who's oppressed right now in the United Michael, States. Michael, you were a lot more offended by Colin Kaepernick's knee than you were by Derek Chauvin's. Donald Trump's racist lies about the first black president never bothered you a bit. We've been through this before. You're not going to say anything to surprise me. You come off as a lonely man seeking attention. And I understand negative attention beats no attention, but I'm not here to hate you back. So say the shitty things you want to say about a brave transgender person who identifies as a woman and puts up with shit from guys like you all day long. She's 10 times the person you are because she doesn't try to be cruel to other people. She doesn't want to hurt other people. And I will call her a she because it's America. That's how she wants to be known. She's a four-star admiral. She's braver than you. You're a guy trying to shit on people whose lives are already hard. Go ahead and John, do what you do. I served in the military for 12 years. Yeah. God bless you, and thank you for your service for that. And I would expect better of you. I wish and, I, and I would expect married, better of you. And I've been married for 12 years, and I have a little boy. Fantastic. I'm very happy for you, and I wish you a wonderful, happy life with a very happy, healthy family. I wish you could wish your blessings to other people, but you can't do that. you got to shit on them. John, the, I'm not shitting on these people. I just want to you know. You called like, her it. You called her it. Yeah, Come on, don't play it's... cute now. Listen, you want to be mean. You want to be a heckler. You want to be negative. And I call you out on it. And you, I believe in your heart you're a better guy than the guy you perform as when you call this show. But you call this show to drop this racist shit because you really hate liberals and you want to own the libs. You were calling two weeks ago saying that they should nuke all of Ukraine and that both uh, uh, New York and L.A. should be nuked. So that's where your humanity's at. And that's a burden you're going to carry, pal. I just said drop them on New York and California. I get that you don't love America. I get that you don't love America. You swore an oath to protect the country, but now you're no longer in the armed forces and you wish for fire and death on Americans. It's shitty. It's beneath you. Like, what is else? Do you anything else, Michael? No, I'm done. What is it? All right, listen, Michael. When you call a radio show. And it's, and and reveal yourself to be hateful. Like, does it make you come or something? Is that what this is about? It's owning the libs, oh, Chris. It's, it's owning just, the libs. It's hilarious that, that you owning the think libs. that a, a man is actually a woman. It's just, it's ridiculous. No, I didn't say no, that. I said he <laughs> identifies as a woman. He lives his, he, she lives her life as a woman. Because ah, in America, <laughs> she has the liberty to do that. And I know you despise that liberty. You despise that freedom that you once pretended you fought for, just as you despise your fellow Americans on whom you wish death if they live in the wrong city. Well, guess what? I've lived in Florida. I've lived in New York. I've lived in California. I love all Americans despite our fuck-ups, despite our meanness. And I wouldn't wish Florida to be de- destroyed by nukes because of mean people like you. I know you're better than this. And I know the real you, if there was a transgender person there in need, in danger, the real you wouldn't be the shitty yeah. racist asshole you play. You'd be a better man than the one you pretend. This is performative masculinity you do, and it's boring, man. It's boring. Be a good guy. Inspire people. Michael, you should be able to relate to trans people. I stand up for in reality you don't stand you support donald trump you you support donald trump you don't give a rat's ass about truth and reality we've been through this you don't care about truth who won the 2020 presidential election who won it yeah who won it that would be donald trump that's right so you don't care about truth and reality where was barack obama born we already have this discussion where was he born 
Yeah, and you fall uh, for it, it every time. Matter his, his, his doesn't matter. He can't answer the question, but he's can't, he stands for truth and reality. Look, what John president was, had who had the lar- Hey, who had the largest inauguration crowd of all time? Was it Donald Trump? <laughs> it's like it you're. Matter. It's like Donald Trump shits these lies into your mouth, and you share them with people, and it makes you look ridiculous to folks who aren't in the bubble. So don't call my show claiming you care about truth and reality when you're a Donald Trump defender. You're blindly obedient to a racist reality show clown who lied to everyone you love during a plague, my friend. Later, later in in November, we're going to whoop your ass. And in the twenty oh, see, there it goes again. Performative masculinity. We're going to whoop your ass. Blah, blah. Listen, dude, LOL. I'm never going to hate you as much as you hate me. You're not going to succeed I in don't doing hate it. You, John. John, Donald Trump lied to everyone you cared about during a plague, and you didn't care. You are monogamous with Donald Trump's lies. You don't care about other people. You like to shit on other people. You like to hurt other people because somehow that is going to take away your pain. Dude, I got to tell you something. Men who treat other men like you do are not happy. Happy men don't call up radio shows just to try and get attention by saying outrageous, hurtful shit to people. I know you're Actually, better this than is this. Hilarious to me. I find it absolutely enjoyable. Of course you do. Oh, of course you I, do. This, this is, is how I you get attention. You... It's a Tuesday <laughs> night, and you sat on the phone for an hour to get a little bit of negative attention. Like I said I was playing a video game. It's not like I had anything. An this is hour. why I think Michael Michael should be able to relate to the transgender community because Michael, that that freedom when you get to be an asshole in front of the whole country, and you finally feel like yourself. Think about like how how stifled you feel all day long. You can't let the world oh, know how truly uh, uh, racist and, you can be. Yeah, I mean, seriously, this, Michael. Like, like, imagine if this you is could just feel such an way. act on your part. Imagine and then, and then, and then, and then you the pretend time. to be Christian, Michael. Like you actually pretend I, to be my, Christian. My you have all this hate in your heart. Michael, hang on a second. You call us, you're always abusive, you have all this hatred in your heart, and then you pretend to be Christian, which is a joke. We both know you don't follow the teachings of Jesus. You don't care for the teachings of Jesus, because then you'd have to love Muslims. You'd have to love transgender women. You'd have to love the Mexican Christian refugees at our border, and you have been taught to despise these people by a Republican media culture that doesn't give a fuck about you, bro. The Republican Party doesn't give a fuck about you. Their job is to get white guys like you angry at bullshit so you'll vote for them we're going to kick your ass this november and how's that going to improve your life how is the republicans kicking democrat ass going to improve your health care going to improve the amount of pollution in your air and water how's it going to improve your 401k it's not you're a sucker for fascists my friend Go ahead. You're a little racist sucker for fascists, and they play on your anger, and the Republican Party does nothing for non-millionaires. Tell me what they do. Tell me one thing the Republican Party has done when they put non-millionaires first. Come on. Come on. I'm talking on a policy level. On a policy level. What have Republicans done for non-millionaires Come on. No, you're so stupid. So is Joe Biden setting the price of gas around the world? Is that it? Because I thought we lived in a capitalism. Do we live in capitalism or does the president set the price of gas? Which one is it? Well, no, but his, his, his policies. It's $10.71 a gallon in Hong Kong. Did Joe Biden's policy like, set that? It's on, $9 John. a gallon in Denmark. Did Joe Biden's policy set that? Hang on, he wants to tell you about the XL pipeline. Don, 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 <laughs> oh, tell me about the Oh, the XL pipeline raised gas prices, right? It was because it was going to bring oil. Yeah, it was going to bring oil from Canada to get refined, and that's what causes gas prices to go up. Dude, they say this bullshit, and you believe it. Let me ask you a question. Ready, Michael? Ready? Ready? Here's the test. You ready? Do you blame the oil companies? 
for the high price of gas? No. Of course you don't, because right-wing media hasn't taught you to do that. Right-wing media teaches you to blame Joe Biden. So here's the second question. When gas prices go down, will you credit Joe Biden? When gas prices go down, will you credit Joe Biden as you blame him now for them going up? When they when they get down to two dollar gas again, yes, I will credit Joe Biden. Never Do you blame Joe Biden for it's eight dollars and thirty six cents a gallon in Israel? Is that Joe Biden's fault? Well, how does how does policies in Dude, the United States? I'm telling you, America's exactly. doing so He's much better. <laughs> America's doing so much better than other countries. It's eight dollars a gallon in France, eight twenty six in Germany. It's four and a half, five dollars here. We're doing so much better than our capitalist allies. But you want to blame Joe Biden for the high gas prices here. But what about eight sixty four dollars a gallon in Netherlands? Is that Joe Biden's fault, too? Or is the price of gas high around the globe, around the globe? Do you understand that the oil industry, the oil industry has, dude, the oil industry has nine thousand approved leases on federal land where they're not drilling. They're sitting on forty six billion dollars profit and they're not. No, they've got the permits. They're not drilling. They have forty six billion dollars profit. And hang on, hang on, sweetie. You know what they're doing with their profits? 40% of the profits they're using for stock buyback to make the CEOs richer. It's all a con, and they get angry white guys like you to be furious at transgender women while they pick your pocket. And by the way, Michael, you're a better man than Trump because Trump stole from vets. You're blindly obedient to a racist clown who stole from veterans with a fraud online university. You are morally obedient to your morally inferior. Goodbye, my racist clown friend. It had no chance against you. I'm not dealing with that bullshit tonight, man. There was it's nothing. Like, there was nothing so it could do. Fucking there was lonely. Oh, there was like nothing I, it could do to get to get you. I'm sorry. I know what it's like to be a man in pain. I even know what it's like to want to take your pain out on other people. But this conservative white male victimhood bullshit. Homeboy waited on hold for an hour just to shit on transgender women, and then as soon as we called him out for being a shitty man, a cruel man, someone who gets off on hurting people. Then he wants to change the subject. <laughs> and we wonder why black women have had it with white guys. 